Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Ben, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I am excited to talk. Absolutely. And today we're also joined by my friend Craig. And Craig, you actually introduced me to Ben's blog. So you kind of complete the, the circle here. Yeah, glad to thanks, be here. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, thanks um, for the intro. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ben, um, could you give us kind of a brief bio and some of the big things you're interested in, but the big problems you're working on right now? Yeah, sure. Uh, so brief as to bios, I am the CTO of Wave, which means that I lead the engineering team. And Wave is a tech startup whose mission is to make Africa the first cashless continent. Um, and so maybe it would help if I explained a little bit about why that's uh, a problem that I'm really excited about working on. And I mean, the short answer to that is that I think it has, will have a really big impact on the lives of a lot of people um, to be able to use electronic payments instead of cash for various things. Now, that's a little bit of like a surprising claim. I guess if you've only ever used electronic payments, you might not realize that like using cash for various things is actually really bad and really inconvenient in ways that are like can be quite damaging. Um, and so I guess I'll give a few different ways that, that this can happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that I think that, that I think Wave is 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 helping solve. So one, the most obvious one is money transfer fees. Um, so if you don't have an easy way to send money by like moving bits around, then a lot of people actually end up spending really surprisingly enormous amounts of, of their income on, on money transfer. So um, in Senegal, uh, if you look at, so Senegal is where Wave has the biggest presence. And if you look at um, our next largest competitor and what their like money transfer revenue was before we entered the market with much lower prices, it was actually like, somewhere around like a percentage point of Senegal's GDP. Oh God. Just on sending, moving money from point A to point B, which if you're used to the money moving operation being something like decrease the bits here and increase them there, then you're like, why does it have to be, you know, 1% of GDP just for this one service? And there were others that were also people were spending a meaningful amount of money on. And I mean, the answer is it doesn't. Um, people don't spend that much money anymore because Wave is much cheaper. But that's just a very direct way in which we're saving people in Senegal like hundreds of millions of dollars a year um, that they can then spend on things that are really important, like school fees or, you know, medical care or whatever. It's not like, um, you know, they're, they're people who typically aren't very well off. And so the money that we save them gets used for really, really important things. Um, another less obvious way in which having electronic payments can be really, really important to people is by... Uh, saving them a lot of time. So like if you're a business person and you don't get a payment when you expect to get a payment, then maybe you run out of inventory and you can't sell things to your customers anymore. And then you lose a lot of income. And this was actually a huge selling point for Wave originally when we launched in Senegal is that we put a lot of effort into making sure that our users could always get access to their funds very quickly. Um, 
And as a result, a lot of our original users just saw their incomes increase a lot because they could, they were like fish traders and they could do more fish trades because they could get their cash faster. Um, and so that's another way that, that uh, having access to electronic payments is really important. Now, maybe I'll, I'll give you one more, which is like the one that I'm most excited about, which is more of a longer term thing, Yeah. which is if you, I, uh, if you look at all of the tech companies in Africa today that are succeeding, they're all fintech companies. And oh, that's kind of like mysterious. Why, why is this? My theory about this is that the problem is if, if you, the tech company, are not collecting the cash yourself, there's no one else to do it for you. And this just makes it impossible to build many types of tech companies in Africa because the infrastructure isn't there. So if you wanted to build an e-commerce company, well, there actually is one of those that IPO'd, although I think it's doing pretty badly now, perhaps related to this, um, is uh, if you're an e-commerce company, then you probably have to get your customers to pay you via cash on delivery, except in a few markets where there's uh, like mature payment infrastructure. And that's just like adds a lot of friction to your business. Absolutely. Um, and similarly, like in many other verticals, like uh, there are just, there's so much stuff that you can't do because you can't really collect payments from your customers. So in the long term, I think that Wave or something like it existing in these countries will enable a lot of different types of businesses to be built that are simply impossible to build right now and really contribute to helping uh, businesses develop in all of these countries and helping the economy grow. So I guess for context on like quantitatively how important this is, uh, Wave was inspired by uh, a product that succeeded in, in Kenya called M-Pesa. And for various reasons, um, even though M-Pesa worked very well in Kenya, um, until now, nobody has really managed to replicate that level of success in other countries. Um, but when M-Pesa succeeded in Kenya, um, a lot of economists looked at basically what was the effect of M-Pesa on people's incomes. And you can do this by looking at M-Pesa was rolled out throughout the country progressively. And you can look at the timing of when people got access to like the first M-Pesa agent in their town. Um, and that, that varies. And so you can use that as sort of a an instrument to figure out what was the effect of, of getting access to M-Pesa on their incomes. And based on that, they estimated that uh, M-Pesa, the rollout of M-Pesa lifted 2% of all Kenyan households out of poverty. Um, oh, wow. So uh, that's just an enormous number of people. And this, this is like, they, 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 they crossed the World Bank, I think, extreme poverty line, which is like $1.50 a day or something. Um, and so, right. So this is just like a massive effect on people's incomes. And, um, you know, it's, it was really surprising to me when I read that study, it was shocking. In fact, that something that seems so simple, like, you know, replacing cash with electronic payments could have this large effect, but, um, that it seems like the finding is like pretty robust. And, you know, if you talk to wave users, they were like really, really pumped about wave and that just convinced me that this is a really important problem to work on. And I think that wave can have like a similar impact to that, like throughout the rest of the, the sub-Saharan African continent. I, uh, following up on that, I, um, do you have, uh, any interesting sort of quick stories about the sorts of things you did to make money so accessible just to get a picture of, uh, how it's impacting. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. There are, there are a lot of things that we do on this, and I would say this is one of the core problems, perhaps the core operational problem, at least, of running a mobile money company. 
Um, so Wave has a network of what we call agents all throughout Senegal that um, our customers can deposit and withdraw their funds at. So in Senegal, we have over 10,000 agents right now. And managing that network of agents is an extremely challenging logistical problem. So there are thousands of them everywhere. Some of them are in very rural areas. And we have to constantly make sure that these agents have enough cash to serve our customers, not so much cash that it increases our capital requirements a lot, um, that they have all the supplies that they need, that they're that they're, they're staying open and serving customers when they promised to in their like business hours and stuff like that. And so this is extremely logistically challenging and a huge fraction of Wave's team is dedicated to the sort of circulatory system of all of the cash between the agents. Um, to be honest, I've lost track of all of the different ways that we do this now. There are like, if I, I there were, we, we used to have a graph of like, you know, here's how every agent exchanges money with Wave. And, you know, when I started looking at that graph, there was like, there, there was like one way. And then at some point it forked off and there are now like 10 ways. And so there are some, some agents go to banks and some agents have intermediaries and some agents go to other agents near them. Um, it's a very complex problem. Um, and I would say one of the most difficult parts and the reason, one of the reasons that Wave is able to be so cheap is that we've solved this problem better than other companies. Um, and that we, we therefore have lower costs and we can pass those on to, to customers in savings. That's awesome. Well, Ben, I, you know, I'm, I'm curious, I, you wrote in one of your posts that, you know, first you were earning to give and now you're kind of, um, you know, kind of the. EA stuff. And now you're working more directly on problems that have high impact. Is that a lot more rewarding than earning to give? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I really underrated this before I started doing this. Uh, but I would say it's, well, obviously it's more, maybe, maybe not obviously it's more personally rewarding because, you know, I can, write a feature and design a feature and code up a feature and ship it to users and then see people use this thing that I built. And I can be like, yes, you know, I built that. And now these people are using it and they're really happy about it. Um, and like, if you show up at somewhere in Senegal and you tell people that you built part of the wave app, they'll be like really excited and like take oh, selfies cool. with you and stuff. Right. So that's, that's rewarding. I think a thing that I underrated more than even I, I underrated that aspect, but I think another underrated aspect of, of how this has been more rewarding is that I think that I just did much better work when I switched to working on something where I was really viscerally motivated by the root goal that I was working on. So gotcha. my previous job before I worked on Wave, I was working on building machine learning models for a startup that used these machine learning models to purchase peer-to-peer -peer loans on like lendingclub.com. They like ran a hedge fund because their machine learning models were better at predicting that these loans were not going to default. And gotcha. I joined this company because I thought it was going to be like a really interesting problem. I would get to read a bunch of statistics papers and like learn how to build machine learning models. Yeah. And like I did that and it was intellectually interesting, but at the same time, it, I, it was very obvious to me, even at the time that my work was not attacking the core constraint of the company. Like their machine learning models were already pretty good. And their real problem was that they were having a hard time convincing people to invest in their hedge fund. Um, and so 
in in retrospect, I mean, I, in fact, I, I I tried to do this a little bit, but I I tried to do a little bit of hedge fund sales, but like I wasn't very good at it because I was an engineer. Um, but also, like, I didn't really care about running a hedge fund, right. and so my my like personal incentives were not work in the right place for this, and I just wasn't wasn't very effective. And instead, what mostly happened to me was I kind of got demotivated and found it hard to focus on my work, and. Um, probably didn't even do a good job at improving the machine learning models as I would have if I really cared about the output of them. And when I moved to Wave, even though my work was, I would say, most people would consider it to be less intellectually interesting uh, to build build features in what is essentially like a what, what engineers call a CRUD app. So a, an app where you create things, you read things, you update things, and you delete things, and that's all you do. And it's extremely simple. Um, and so most people would consider that int less intellectually interesting, although I would disagree. But e even so, I think like I became much more effective as a person doing things just because I was thinking from first principles about what problem in the world am I trying to solve and what is the shortest path to solving it? And I wasn't trying to, for instance, I didn't care whether my job involved, you know, reading statistics papers or doing accounting, which literally my job involved doing accounting for like months at one point. And, you know, uh, it wasn't, I, I'm glad that I didn't spend a lot more months doing it, but ultimately it was fine because I knew that the accounting was actually the most important way for us to achieve our goals. Thing you, that um, you could be working on. Yeah. Got it. And so as a result of that, I think I did, did much better work and became much more effective as like a person trying to achieve goals than I would have if I had been sort of more disconnected or alienated from the the end product of the thing that I was working on. Gotcha. And you may have just answered this question, but you know, what general advice do you have that on, on selecting a problem to work on? You know, and, and are there things people generally miss when they think about that? Yeah. So the generalized handle that I have for this experience is that you should look for something that resonates with you, which is to say like that where you don't feel like you have to force yourself to do things that you, you don't care about, but that instead it's something that you're really like excited about and you're not internally conflicted about whether to work on it. Right. Um, and yeah, I would say, I think most people in my experience and or certainly my personal experience was I did not realize what was possible before I, I changed jobs and started working at Wave. I didn't realize that it was possible to have work that resonated so much, I think, especially as oh, a, like a software engineer who cared about improving the world. I was like, well, obviously, the, like there, all, all of the things that I look at where people say, oh, I'm doing software engineering and, and it directly improves the world. I was like, oh, these are all kind of bogus, right? Like people <laughs> at Facebook think that Facebook is directly improving the world because like Mark Zuckerberg is really good at convincing people that Facebook directly improves the world. And like most people seem like they're kind of bullshitting themselves and I, I, I don't really believe this. Um, and so I, I decided to earn to give because I didn't think it was possible to work on something where I felt like basically everything that I was doing was aligned with, was was fully aligned with with goals that I was trying to achieve in the world. Um, and I think in, in both this and in many other areas, like I would say, I think people don't realize how good things can be. And so they settle. And I guess my generalized advice is like, consider not settling. I don't oh, know. I think it's, I, I would say also don't, don't take it like, 
as with all advice that I give, I would say people should also consider reversing this advice and in the sense that uh, maybe I got lucky and maybe some people actually should settle or like, uh, you know, maybe if you're listening to this, you're already likely to have received the advice, don't settle like a lot. <laughs> right. And so you're already too far in the non-settling direction. Right. Um, but like, if you, if you hear the advice, like, you know, things can, things can be a lot better than they currently are. And that resonates with you, then maybe consider trying to make things way better than they are. I want to unpack one thing. So I think you had the EA like lesson of that, like people can easily fool themselves about the impact they're having, right? So at the very mm -hmm. beginning of that story was, you notice that lots of people, lots of software engineers have like fooled themselves about the impact that they're having because they're working at particular companies and that sort of thing. And so then it's like, that's that was the first step. How important do you think um, that EA, like really trying to think of your sort of what impact you're actually having in this career is? I mean, if you care a lot about having an impact, I think it's incredibly important. And most people are quite bad at it, although maybe not most listeners to this podcast. I don't know, like, <laughs> right. I, I don't know the demographics of, of your listeners. Um, but yeah, I do think it's it's very, very easy, um, not for not not just in, in choosing a job, but in, in most things to convince yourself that you're doing something important and turns out that that's like, that's not really true. That makes sense. Um, going right off that, you know, you, uh, you wrote a post on life advice posts. It's got a meta post. I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Um, do you still read it every week? I believe you mentioned that. Um, oh, you mean the, the, so this was a post of a, a, a bunch of links to essays of, yeah. of life advice that yeah. I read. Um, not literally those essays. I have had to change them up over time yeah. because, you know, they get stale if you reread them, you know, five or six times. And I could probably recite a lot of them from memory <laughs> at this point. Um, but I I do still read, like, have a list of, like, things that I read to, like, motivate myself to be more awesome. Um, and I've just, like, found this really useful. I still find it useful. That's awesome. Um, do any stand out in particular as having, like, a big impact? Um... So I would say it's actually, it's, I would say it's actually less about the particular things that I'm reading. Like it's, it's not like they're not obvious, right? In some sense, right. I shouldn't need Sam Altman to tell me like, uh, you know, don't put family low on your priority list. Like this is something everybody already knows, right? Right. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's less about the, the actual, the, the content and more about, um, the uh continue it's it's less about the, the content being novel and more about like continuously reminding myself of of what is important and i think that actually what is important to you varies a lot by person right, right? um so i would, wouldn't want to make like generic recommendations there although i guess i kind of did with this this blog post but um like i guess so the way that i the way that i think about this is I actually, I actually read a great blog post on this topic, which I will, I will cite because it's like made an interesting point. It's called um, uh, "How to Read Self Help" by a guy named Tom Cleveland, and his point was basically this: that like people read self help books not because they contain non obvious insights. I mean, some of them maybe do, but most of them, it's pretty 
it's stuff that you read and you're like, well, duh, of course. Right. <laughs> but the reason that you're reading it isn't because you, you need to be informed of something that you previously did not know. It's that you need somebody to like kick you in the pants and be like, go be more awesome. Right. And um, that's sort of the, the point of, of these these like life advice essays is that like if I'm I so I read these right before I do my like weekly review where I think about the question of like how could I have done a more awesome job in the past week um not literally just my job but also like personally in, yeah. in my life um and so it's it's really good to go into those weekly reviews in a state of like yes I'm gonna become more awesome in all of the ways that I don't know Sam Altman or thinks that I should be more awesome or something like that how long have you but it's also doing... good to have a mix of a mix of these so that a so that they don't get right. stale and b so that you don't just become a clone of like one one person. <laughs> right. How did you develop that like weekly meta habit of doing the the weekly review and like getting these bottles of inspiration or Oh, yeah. So I also wrote a blog post on this. So I guess we should probably put it in the show notes cuz it'll have a, a more complete picture. Um but uh I think I, so I started doing these at the recommendation of Drew, Wave CEO, um, and I, uh, I, I think. Um, and I just found, I found them incredibly useful as sort of um, a way to continuously make small imp but compounding improvements to my personal habits over time. So every week I would, it, it started out with like every week I would look at my, my rescue time report and I would be like, oh gosh, this week I spent a lot of time in Slack. And like, what if I spent less time in Slack by batching it instead of alt tabbing to my Slack window every five minutes? And it turned out, you know, after a few weeks of this, I was spending, I think something like 50% less time in Slack and 50% wow. less time in like scheduling tools generally and like 50% more time on programming. And I was like, holy crap, I just became 50% more productive <laughs> by like asking myself this simple question. Um, and after that, it became pretty clear that like, yes, this is a thing that is like very useful and that I should keep doing. I would say, interestingly, I have found it to be a very hard habit to stick to, even though really? I intellectually know that like it's very important. Yeah, it's just like, you know, some weekends I won't be in the mood to do a weekly like, review so or like, like I'll like, you know, my friend will invite me to have waffles at my weekly review time. And I'll be like, right. weekly review, waffles, <laughs> like, you know, hard choice. Waffle time. Um, yeah. And so, and uh, you know, I've evangelized weekly reviews to a bunch of colleagues at Wave um, who have all, all, also often had the same problem of like, oh, I, I know that I should do this. And Yet somehow it's hard and I always deprioritize it in favor of other things. Um, so like per perhaps the, the most important thing to making it stick was iterating a lot on the format of the weekly review and like what time I would do it at and what prompts I would use and making sure that I set things up so that I wouldn't like slide off halfway through um, just to make sure that I actually successfully did it uh, every time. Um, and if you're going to start a weekly review habit, I highly recommend like basically focusing most on like how do you make sure that you keep doing it over time, and picking up if you if you if you drop it. That's that's a great thought, and I, I've had great success. Uh, my wife and I do it every Wednesday night, so we have dinner together, oh, yes. and then like yeah, so having an accountability buddy, some kind of like accountability is, buddy. Uh, yeah, quite helpful. Yeah, that can be really useful. That's cool. Um, I think this is Craig's question, but I'm curious about it as well. Uh, you know, there's so much to read out there. You know, how do you filter out what's worth consuming and, and what's not? 
Yeah, um, this is something I kind of, I wish I had a, a, a better answer to. Um, I think the only thing that I have started doing that I think was not obvious to me originally was to be very aggressive about not finishing things that I start, whether that's books or articles or something like that. Um, like, I used to be sort of a completionist about these things and yeah. think that it was immoral not to finish a book. And then I realized, like, you know, life is short. Um, and so, yeah, being being really aggressive about um, uh, removing... Uh, or sorry, not removing. Uh, being being more aggressive about fil skipping things if it seems like you're not getting very much out of them, I think is is pretty important. Um, is there anything else that I do that's interesting? Um, I think uh, not relying on social media for things is something I would I would plug. So um, you know, a lot of people used to use RSS feeds back when Google Reader existed. Um, yeah. When apparently nobody cared enough about RSS to go find another RSS reader when when Google died or when Google killed Google Reader, and I think that's pretty sad. Um, but like, well, one thing that you can do now is like Substack exists, and so you can subscribe directly to people's Substacks and not rely on the magic of algorithms to to get you their thing. And there are like a lot of really good Substack writers. Um, but also, RSS still works. Um, and you can consume a lot of things by RSS, including Substack, if you want. So I actually, I have an RSS reader. I use an RSS reader called Kindle for RSS that uh, delivers all of the RSS items for a given day to my Kindle. And then like I can read it offline and not get distracted by by the internet and, and, and stuff like that. Um, I guess I also often read this like while going to sleep. And that really forces me to prioritize what I'm going to read because I know if I'm reading something boring because I start to fall asleep. Right. Uh, so, you know, maybe that's a life hack for you. Um, it's not like an unending list of things to do. It's not like an infinite scroll or like an inbox. Like if you're relying on your inbox instead, then the, the emails keep coming and they keep piling up and that sort of thing. But if it's bundled every day in your Kindle and then, you know, you kind of have to finish that day's yeah. Yeah, that's definitely something that I really appreciate about it. I do still use um, social feeds some, and I guess I actually use Hacker News a lot. I mean, I hate Hacker News, but I also think it's like <laughs> a very good source of interesting things, which I would not have otherwise discovered. And just as a piece of social technology is quite impressive. Like if you look at how crappy, for instance, like Google search has gotten over the last like 15 years or kind of like how hard it is to find good information on most things and how much they become like gamed and like become right. terrible. I think it's really, really impressive the degree to which Hacker News is actually still quite useful and interesting, despite it, I would say it's many, many flaws. Um, but uh, so I don't know, I, I, I do wish that there was a better way to consume these things uh, without having a sort of infinite feed that you need to check a lot. And I've actually, I, I wish this often enough that I'm considering writing my own sort of like reading management app that, that works the way I think it should work. But I haven't, I haven't gotten there yet, but maybe someday I'll take a long enough vacation that I can finish it. Um, and yeah, I don't think, I definitely don't think this is a, a solved problem. Definitely. Um, you've written a lot, uh, or a fair, you've written a post, wrote a post about, um, management and, mm -hmm. uh, what are some big takeaways and how have you evolved over time? Like how has your management skill gotten better? And is there any takeaways we could, we could garner from it? 
Yeah, I have a few. So I think the first big adjustment that I encountered when I switched from being an, an individual contributor engineer to being a manager was the feedback loop is much longer. So if you're doing individual contributor engineering, right, somebody you know asks you to help build a feature and you design it and then you build it and you, you write the code and then you test the code and the code works and you're like, great, my thing's gonna work. And then you ship it and then there's your thing, it, it's working, you're done. Um, it went well. Um, and uh, that cycle can often take, you know, a couple days at, at most. And there are, of course, intermediate points where you're like, you write your code and you basically know it works. And that, that part can take, you know, like an hour or something. Um, if you're a manager, and especially if you've never been a manager before, your most of your work isn't like that. Like, you'll have a one-on-one -on -one with somebody and you'll give them some advice. And, you know, two weeks later, they'll be like, you know, that, that advice was like kind of useful. And then like four weeks later, they'll be like, <laughs> I'm still thinking about that advice that you gave me. And then like two months later, they'll be like, oh, that advice, it was so good. Um, and so it takes you a lot longer to learn whether the things you're doing are useful or non-useful. And um, that just, I guess, I think this is a common problem for people who transition from engineering to management, but it deprived me of a lot of my like daily dopamine. And I kept asking myself, you know, <laughs> Oh, is, is this stuff that I'm doing even like useful? If I disappeared tomorrow, like would anyone care? Um, and like, eventually I learned, I think most of what I learned was how to judge myself on process and not results. So instead of having to wait for somebody to be like two months later, oh, like that advice was really good. I'd be like, I would finish the meeting and I would think to myself, yeah, I feel like I gave really good advice in that meeting. Um, and I would be satisfied with that, even though I hadn't seen the full cycle play out. And I think that was uh, an important mindset shift that helped me sort of cope. But it just takes a long time to be have good enough models of what goes on when you are doing management that you can do that. And so it's like it's a tough transition, and basically just one that I think you have to like be ready for and understand that you feel uncertain about whether your work is good now, not because you're a bad manager, but because this happens to everyone. That makes sense. Um, it's a big shift. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it, that, so that was the biggest shift. I would say another thing that uh, was important for me, and I guess this is related, is um, just learning to be more patient. Um, so I think, I, I mean, I wrote a whole blog post about how great it is to be impatient. Um, <laughs> and I still think that it is really, I, I still endorse that post. Um, like it's really good to ask yourself, how can things move more quickly and stuff like that. Um, but if you are a manager and you're helping other people solve their problems, it's important to usually, uh, instead of like, uh, instead of for instance, jumping in to help them yourself, um, which uh, like, over time will lead you to become overcommitted and everyone to continue to rely on you to solve problems, which is not what you want because then you will not be able to scale. It's important to do it in a way, in the way that helps people learn how to solve their own problem instead. Um, and so that, that was another big mindset shift for me. And then I, I think the third one, which is also, I guess, related to the above too, is getting my own opinions out of the loop. 
Um, I mean, I so I I became a manager because I in, in in part because I was a very good engineer, and I often like had opinions about what good engineering entailed. And uh, when I first became a manager, those opinions were like still mostly valid because I still had a lot of context on the what was going on at at the engineering level. Um, however, as I stop as I have stopped contributing to the code base myself. Um, and stopped like doing most of the individual work myself. Um, my opinions have become more and more stale and more and more likely to be incorrect. And so, um, as a protective mechanism against um, having incorrect opinions, I have always tried to, instead of telling people my opinion, ask a series of questions that cause them to realize what the correct opinion to have is. Nice. Um, the advantage to this being. If, if my opinion is not actually correct, then they will answer the questions in a way that tells me that my opinion is, is incorrect. Um, and so this is especially important because if you're in a position in the uh, sort of a high in the hierarchy position, uh, people will default to sort of assuming that you know what you're talking about, which is often extremely untrue. And so you have to you have to figure out how to protect yourself from not knowing what you're talking about because nobody else is, is going to do it for you. Um, and so I guess, Figuring out how to ask, how to ask questions instead of say like instead of state things that people might not tell you are clueless <laughs> was another thing that I think has has made me a lot more effective. That's awesome, it. yeah, that's that's cool. Like um, you know, unlearning some habits, like habits that served you well as a software, like as an individual contributor. Uh, you know, uh, like appreciating that feedback. And then uh, being impatient to try and like kind of urge things forward at a quicker pace. And then, yeah, you know, just building your intuitions and having good opinions. Uh, it's interesting that management for you, but the most important part of management for you was like unlearning those habits that you had learned as a. As yeah, a, definitely. Yeah. I, I love that. And I, I have a question. I, it's, it's I, just for me pretty much, but anyway, <laughs> we'll go for it. Um, Keith Rapport, Raboy. Boy, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. Uh, founded Open Door, VC at Founders Fund. Now he has this uh, blog post, and he describes giving people only one priority at any given time. Um, and I've used this, and, and it's really helped me, like in management situations. Like you know, just just I, you know, what's the most important thing? You know, the individual contributor could be doing, um, and that's the only thing. Like we'll even talk about. Like, this is all that matters. And, and that's like been a really good way to like speed things up. Do you find like, you know, how many priorities is optimal at any given time? You know, I, and it could just be like, you know, I'm just a terrible manager and like, that's all I can handle. So I, I don't know, but I, I'm curious if you're thinking on this. No, I, I think you're not a terrible manager. I think in <laughs> fact, you're a really good manager for only giving your reports one thing to work on. Um, and in fact, this is something that's, I think, very deeply ingrained in Waves culture. So for example, um, if you ever talk to Drew, the CEO, yeah. um, and you, you give him a list of multiple things, he will immediately ask you, is this list stack ranked? And if the <laughs> list is not stack ranked, the conversation will pause while you stack rank that list <laughs> so that Drew knows what the most important item in the list is. Um, and uh, I think this, uh, I mean, sort of the, the reason this is, this is great is because most things you do in a, a company context are, I guess, distributed according to uh, a power law. So um, maybe this is like a, a weird statistical digression, but I think it's it's really interesting and under, underrated. So I'll give you the, the mini version. But um, 
So things like human height are distributed according to a normal distribution. So like there's some average and like things are clustered like pretty tightly around the average. The average for like height for, for men is like, it's either like five, 10 or six feet. And then like most people are within like, you know, four inches of that or, or whatever. Um, whereas uh, the distribution for income between people is, um, is, is distributed according to what's called a power law. So like basically like, uh, the, the stylized version of this is the 80, 20 rule where like, you know, 20% of the people have 80% of the wealth or, or something like that. Um, similarly in a company, um, so this is uh, notably, this is a very different distribution from height. It is not the case that 20% of the humans have 80% of the tallness. Um, <laughs> I, be very not, tall. It's funny to imagine what that would look like, where like you know, most people are like six inches high, and then there are like a few people who are like miles tall. Yeah. Um, but that is not what it looks like. Anyway, so this is a kind of counterintuitive thing for humans to think about because most things in the physical world are not power law distributed. Um, but uh, if you're starting a company, there is a power law distribution among like what is what is the next possible thing that you could work on. Um, you might not know what the the thing is that is at the top of the uh, the tail and is going to you know get you most of your users for the next month or whatever um but that thing is out there and like you should really only be working on things that you think could plausibly be that thing and just focus really intensely and kind of ignore everything else um and so i would say that level of focus which i would say seems maniacal from the outside is definitely one of the things that has helped Wave succeed with a relatively small team um, in building a product that has a huge impact on a lot of people's lives is just really being ruthless about only working on things that we think could be in that power law of like the 20% of things that will do 80% of the needle moving over the next month. That's a great little cultural thing about the stack rank. I love that. Is there any other yes. uh, curious things about Wave culture that you'd like to share? Um. Maybe this is related to, to stack ranking. I, I think um, a lot of our communication happens in the form of, of bulleted indented lists, which is maybe nice. something that I didn't expect uh, coming from you know a more academic background where people like their paragraphs and their complete sentences. But in fact, I, in, in my opinion now is that bulleted lists are much more effective because they make the structure obvious to you instead of you having to reverse engineer the actual structure from somebody's, somebody's paragraph. Um, the other advantage, of course, is that if you have a bulleted list, you can use keyboard shortcuts to stack rank it really quickly, nice. which is very important <laughs> if you're stack ranking things like multiple times a day. Um, I guess that's more of a, a, a quirk than a thing that's really core for us. Um, cultural things that are really important, I would say, I mean, we've always, so I, th I think the most important thing is we've, we've always hired for, basically exclusively for people who are really excited about working on our mission. Nice. Um, and I mean, one reason for this, we've already talked about when, when you asked me, you know, uh, about choosing a, a problem to work on, which is just like, I think it's not unique to me that I do much better work when I'm really motivated by the end goal. I think this is true yeah. of most people. Um, and so we really want people who will do amazing work and that's much more likely if they're excited about the thing that they're producing and not just working with, with shiny technology or, or something like that. Um, the second thing that I think is like maybe less less obvious or more interesting about this approach is um, that it leads to a really really aligned team um, uh, that has I think very little like you know internal disagreement or discord um, 
And this just makes it really easy to work with anyone at Wave because you know that if you have a disagreement with them, you're both trying to do the best thing for our users. And the only thing you disagree on is how to get there. And as a result, it's much easier for us to be like, oh, you know, these people disagree. They should just sit in a room until they agree. And <laughs> usually that works. Um, <laughs> and you, that works and the decision they end up making is like much better um, compared to my impression is that at many companies of wave size, there's quite a lot more internal politics and standing disagreements um, and, you know, people thinking that others are, are acting in, in bad faith or something. So obviously this is going to be hard to scale as, as we grow, uh, but it's something that I, I really hope that we can preserve because I think it's, it's very common for organizations to really start having a lot of problems with this. And I think that Wave's compelling mission gives us an advantage that most companies don't have at sort of avoiding the typical descent into, I guess, uh, maybe if I say descent into a moral maze, then everyone who <laughs> has listened to your episode with Z will like know what I'm, yeah, absolutely. I'm talking about. I love that. I love that. I, I And I hadn't thought about, you know, mission as like a, a certain hedge against is some sort of hedge against like a descent into moral mazes like that. That's, that's really well put. Um, well, Craig, do you have any other questions? Or if not, I'll jump into overrated, underrated. Are you shaking my head? Uh, no, that sounds good. Cool. Awesome. So um, I'll throw out a term and just tell us whether it's overrated, underrated, and uh, why. Or maybe it's correctly Great. rated. Um, Great. Graduate school, overrated, underrated, correctly rated? Yeah. Oh, man. You you really want a, a, a rant, don't you? Yeah. Um, I would say I would say graduate school is a... Uh, I would say it's overrated by like probably like 95% of people and either correctly or, or underrated by like 5%. I actually, I, I updated on this recently. Um, so first I'll tell you why it's overrated by yeah. like really, really overrated by most people, um, which is, so, I mean, the, the root reason is that the incentives are all messed up and like, as a result, so the way that I look at it as a manager is, of course, that grad students are individual contributors and their managers are just really like abjectly terrible. <laughs> um, I think it's 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 very common that your thesis advisor will basically not give you the time of day, that you'll have to email them multiple times to get like the most trivial of things from them. And that's just because you're basically a, a peon to them and your pr productivity mostly like doesn't affects anything they do very much and they're like like absorbing the research this is certainly not true of all uh advisors but it's it's a very common experience and very very bad experience to have um an advisor who does not care about you and is sort of hanging you out to dry right. um and like as a result of the fact that graduate students are incompetently managed uh, they have the same problem that happens to anyone who is doing something they don't know how to do and has an incompetent manager, which is sky high rates of depression and anxiety. God. So you can look at the um, surveys of, of grad students and their, their mental health problems, um, and you will discover that the average, the, the rate of depression among graduate students is approximately equal to the rate of depression among people whose spouse died one month ago. Oh, um, God. Jesus yeah, Christ! It's really, oh, no. really bad. Oh, no. Um, it's like I, it, it is a. I would say like you know, it it is a moderate humanitarian crisis. Yeah, Jesus. Um, that is completely avoidable. Gotta go um, rescue right, these people. Like, you know, gotta ride down to Duke and break them out. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm trying, right? I keep, right. I keep harping. Exactly. I, I will keep harping on this. Working on it. Um, the, the, the harping will continue until, until grad student attendance rates improve. Um, <laughs> so, uh, right. Okay. So, um, that's, that's why it's incredibly overrated by most people. I think that like, uh, you know, oh, and then like, um, I guess the other, the other reason that it, it is overrated is because most people who are considering grad school only get ask for advice from professors and the professors are all like, you should go to grad school. It's great. You'll get an academic job for sure, which is totally false. Um, and they don't ask, for instance, fifth year grad students who, if you ask them, will all be like, man, it sucks so much here. Never do grad <laughs> school. Um, and like, uh, so there are all these like chipper bright-eyed undergraduates thinking they have amazing chances on the academic job market and then it's sort of the feeling of doom gradually washes over them but by that time they're in like year three and if they quit they'd have like three years of sunk cost um and yeah it's just it's really it's really bad um anyway oh i guess i, sh I should have cited my, my point of evidence for like the 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 impact that this bad management has which is so uh, my uh, a former partner was a was a graduate student and had one of these i would say fairly checked out advisors and oh, he, he was like not a bad person he was like you know nice when they had meetings and like yeah. tried to be supportive of her but also if she wanted anything from him she would have to email him like two or three times um and Jesus. like she gradually developed an ug field around emailing him because of that yeah um and so i observed this and i thought huh like Maybe if she had anyone giving her, so the, the, this is like management 101 is like, you should have one-on-ones with your yeah. direct reports, which is a, a meeting every week. It's kind of like a weekly review, like the one that you will do with your, your, your wife. Um, it's like, what if, what if I did this? Uh, well, so, right. So her advisor was not doing this. Yeah. He just like, you know, I mean, maybe he would have, if she asked, but he didn't set it up, which yeah. he should have. Um, and so I was like, well, you know. Unlike her advisor, I care about her getting out of grad school, mostly because then she will be less depressed and then I will be less depressed. Right. And so what what if I filled in for this guy? I mean, I'm not an academic philosopher. I don't really understand anything about my partner's dissertation, but I do, unlike him, have the qualification of caring a lot. Right. Um, and, and so we started doing this and I asked questions like, oh, like, you know, how's your email to that guy going? Have you sent it yet? And she would be like, I guess I should send it. Um, and stuff like that. It's like very sort of basic, like manage management advice type yeah. stuff. And um, at the end of her dissertation, I, I asked her, you know, like, were, were these helpful? Like, and she was like, yeah, like, I, th I think they sped me up by like about a year in finishing oh, my dissertation. Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Like I, I was spending half an hour every week I didn't know anything about philosophy. So I was basically just asking questions about like email and like, I mean, I was like, I, I was doing to be a little bit more charitable to myself. I was doing a lot of like active listening. Like I would like rubber duck. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was basically, I was basically her rubber duck. Um, uh, and like, maybe I was like, I would ask slightly more mean questions than a rubber duck. Like nice. <laughs> really you should send that email <laughs> um, or, or something like that. Um, but so it, it was, um, and I, I think that like, I wasn't that replaceable because like, I think it was important that I actually cared and wasn't right. just like checked out during those meetings or something. So, um, but anyway, I think it's, it's completely ludicrous that I basically saved her a year out of like four that she had been working on that dissertation. Like, it's just like the, the, how many other of these incredibly smart people are wasting years. I don't know, like scrolling Facebook because they're dissociated because they like 
don't know how to make progress on their thing because they have an UG field around sending emails that like could, could be yeah. like trivially fixed by having a manager who cares at all instead of not caring. Right. Okay. Just, so that, that's, that's, that's my rant. Just caring matters. Um, yes. Um, oh, I guess I was, I, I still owe you a, 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 an explanation of why I think it's underrated. Yeah. Uh, by the other 5%. And maybe I'm overestimating the 5% thing, but I did I did see somebody tweet recently that all of my smart friends uh, are now telling me that they don't want to go to grad school because it's about as bad as having their spouse die. Um, which I had two conflicting reactions. One is like, yes, I've created a meme. Um, but the, the other conflicting reaction is like, I don't think it's actually true that literally no one should go to grad school. I think there are people for whom it is a, a good choice um, and that they can actually have a big impact by doing academic research. Um, I think there are basically, there are like a few, a few sort of predictors that you can use here to tell you whether, like to what extent you should be worried about like grad school destroying your mental health. So um, one, obviously, as I mentioned, is like having an advisor who cares. And I think yeah. you can do a lot to figure out whether you will have an advisor who cares before actually selecting their advisor, but nobody yeah. tells you to do this. Um, but like, you should really do it. So, I mean, ask their current grad students whether they are supportive and how supportive and do you have weekly or bi-weekly meetings and yeah. do they give you good advice in those meetings and stuff like that. And like, you know, if, have you ever been depressed? If so, how did your advisor like handle it? Um, yeah. stuff like that. Um, so that's one thing. I think there are also like some things about your personal situation that can make grad school like a better or worse decision. I think if you have an alternative to the academic job market. Um, so for instance, if you're in computer science grad school, you can become a programmer. Yeah. Um, this takes a lot of the pressure off because you're not worried about being totally unemployed if your like one paper fails to be a good paper or something like that. Yeah. Um, so that's, that, that's like one important thing. Um, and then I think the other thing is having experience being effectively self-directed. Um, so I think, for instance, I think I would be much better at being a grad student now than I would have been if I had gone straight after college. Um, I don't really know how feasible it is to do, I guess, what I would call real work between college and grad school. I think this varies by field and sometimes it can make you look bad, um, for reasons that I don't really understand. Um, but basically if you have been thrown into the deep end of these things before and you've been like, yeah, I'm really fine, like taking initiative to like email my advisor, even though it's like pulling teeth to get a response that's useful, or like, I'm really happy being like left to my own devices and I won't get depressed if I get stuck on a thing for a long time and don't have any idea how to make progress. I think that's like a good sign that you will uh, be okay in grad school. And um, I think that generally like some of the things that people do in grad school, like have a big impact on the world because they discover new and interesting stuff yeah. um, that then like, you know, helps develop new technology or, or, or whatever. Um, oh, and the last thing that I would say is like uh, knowing why you're there and having like a very clear sense of mission, I think important. is all, the other thing. I think a lot of people go to grad school because they have graduated from undergrad and it's like that or what a real job next? and they've never, they've never thought about their real job option. Right. And so like grad school, like no matter what you majored in in college, you can go to grad school in that thing and it's a real option. And if you majored in something like poorly chosen, maybe you don't have any other options that seem high status. Right. Um, and so that could end up with a lot of people in grad school who like, maybe if they had thought through things earlier, shouldn't have ended up there. That makes a lot of sense. And Craig, do you have any thoughts on that as our resident, uh, graduate student in the group? 
Ben, oh, are uh, you are you a grad student, Craig? I'm sorry if I insulted your. your <laughs> well, I'm doing, uh, but so I'm in a I'm getting a PhD in economics from Duke, uh, and I'm in my seventh year, and I definitely could have benefited from a fair amount of that advice. Uh, however, sorry, I've started working concurrently, so I I got a job as an economist, uh, and so yeah, no, trying to wrap things ah. up soon, but definitely could have. Uh, yeah, there are, there are some key some key things. I guess the things I would add my own experience to. Um, yeah, I think the one you said about like being self-directed was the biggest one for me. I had worked uh, before grad school, um, so I was familiar with that. But, you know, if you had asked me, like, when you have an independent project that's somewhat aversive, are you able to diligently work on it? Like, the answer would have clearly been no. <laughs> and I think that, like, I learned how important that was <laughs> over these past, you know, four years or five years. So, yeah, but yeah. That's great. Uh, and I, I like what Ben, what you said about, you know, uh, having meaning and, 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 and like really think about like purposefully, like, you know, what are you doing at each step just throughout your entire life, I think is a really valuable lesson to, um, to just try and do more of just be intentional. Yeah. I strongly agree with this. I think that like, I, I've been noticing more and more of the degree to which, like, it seems like a I think everyone, like most people, and I would include myself in this, most people like underthink this. I guess, or spend like less time than would be optimal thinking about sort of what what should I be doing and, and why right. should I be doing this? Probably because it's, uh, as Craig said, like it's an aversive project uh, that you yeah, have to work on independently. <laughs> um, and um, so in fact, like I've benefited a lot in the past from my friends nudging me to be like, oh, like it seemed like you were thinking about this. Did you make any progress on it? And I'm like, I didn't make any progress on this because it's aversive. Right. I'd be like, yeah. have you considered thinking about it? Um, anyway, so yeah, I think that, um, learning how to, I guess I would call, like learning how to stare into the abyss, um, right. of like, what, what should I be doing? Am I currently doing the right thing? Um, is something that I've found to be really, every time I've leveled up in this skill, I found it to be really useful and caused me to make much better decisions. I, I love that. Uh, Richard Hamming, I, you might've, I might've found it on your website, you and your research. I believe uh, that is one of advice? the uh, life, one of the life advice essays. Yes. Uh, okay. Perfect. He, he had a thing where every Friday afternoon, he would take the entire afternoon. It was like a quarter of his full working time and just sit there and try and think and about whether what he was working on was valuable or not. And like, yeah, you know, set, which I, I don't know. Maybe a quarter sounds like a lot to me, but um, you know, not to be underrated. I don't know. I, he, he was a smart Hammond. guy. I mean, He's yeah, he, guy. uh, I think he, I think he got some good results from it. Um, yeah. and I would say like, uh, yeah, it's, um, I'm, 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 I'll say I'm, I'm not surprised. I think that like, if you, um, important decisions take a long time to make, um, and like a lot of thought. Um, and if that's, you know, how you're deciding to spend the next five years of your life or whatever, it's definitely, it's like a highly leveraged use of time. Definitely. I guess one, one thing I want to echo too is just, as you said, staring into the abyss. I think one thing that was hard for me is like, I gravitate toward quick problems or just like problems where you can get that feedback and feel like you're making progress on them quickly. And it's like mm. the, the things I have had to level up through the PhD is just like being willing to sit with frustrating situations that don't resolve in like 15 minutes of concentration. And so maybe the key is like to get to, you know, his levels of success, you have to be willing to do it for three hours a week or something like that, of like really sitting and staring and focusing on like a challenging problem. But yeah. 
Yeah, that's definitely something that makes it harder is like, it's not always easy to tell when you're making progress. Right. Because it can be, it can be sort of, it can come in lumps. Like you, you spend th three hours thinking of something and you don't think about anything or you don't think of anything useful. And then, you know, the ne you, you spend five more minutes and you're like, oh, I've been thinking about it wrong the entire time. And like, I really, really, my stack ranking should have had this other thing in the number one spot. And now like, I need to rethink everything based on the fact that my criteria have changed. Um, and so if it's kind of like, um, the, the act of staring into the abyss itself is like you're you're sampling from sort of a heavy tail distribution. And sometimes a lot of the time it's useless. And then sometimes it's like, you realize that you should completely change how you're thinking about something. And so it's pretty demotivational, um, it, at least until you've done it a lot and seen that the results pay off. It's really easy to tell yourself, oh, this is useless. Like I should just stop, stop overthinking things and, and start and, and keep down my current path. Um, but then I, I think this is actually something that I've, I've, I've learned to love partly by working at Wave and seeing Drew, the CEO, who is, I would say, the person I know who is best at staring into the abyss, being like, oh, you know, maybe we should completely change what our business is working on. Um, so uh, I guess an interesting part of the Wave story is that before they even started doing money transfer at all, they the founders worked on 10 different social mobile apps and pivoted from oh, each really? one. Oh, really? Which I... I I mean, I think this has oh. to be like a record of a, like largest number yes. of, of, of pivots. Um, uh, they got really good at, at, at building mobile apps, um, but none of them none of them took off. Um, and so I think they just got very good at at thinking, oh, at realizing, oh, like we have been working on completely the wrong thing for the last whatever. And this happened again with Wave, even after. So the the original product of the company was uh, was international money transfer, like sending money from the U.S. to Kenya. Um, and that thing reached product market fit. It reached like basically saturation in the, yeah. in the U S to Kenya market within a year. Um, like over half of all Kenyans were using the thing. Um, and so it was like a, a hugely successful product and the founders nevertheless realized that, um, domestic mobile money, the thing that wave is working on now was like a much more important business. And basically, um, they, they didn't completely pivot that time because like SendWave, um, the money transfer product was, was working and yeah. so they needed to keep it around, but they pivoted on basically a hundred percent of their own attention to this completely unproven new product that then, so that was in, um, like, I think like late 2015 or early 2016 that they started working on it. And then it took another three years after that for mobile money to get to product market fit. Um, which is just like, and of course now, like the mobile money business is is way more valuable than 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 Send, SendWave would have been. Yeah. Um, and so I think they've they've certainly been vindicated there. But it just took an insane amount of conviction to yeah. leave behind this business that was obviously good and be like, oh, this completely unproven thing. We have we are confident that this completely unproven thing right. is going to be much more important in the long term to our business. And we're going to give up on the thing that we know works. Um, right. So watching them, and th that wasn't the only kind, that's just the biggest instance of that type of decision. Yeah. There have been like many, many smaller ones also. Um, and so I guess like learning from from Drew and Lincoln about sort of how to um, how to stare into the abyss and, and realize that you have been working on the wrong thing and be okay with that because you're making progress um, has really helped me sort of internalize that mindset. Right. And, and Ben, we're at the top of the hour. So if you have to go, just, just let me know. Um, I have more time. Okay, good. Uh, my question is, so, you know, making that pivot, right. From send wave to internal money transfers, um, you know, like you said, it had to take like a, 
you, you know, what's the internal story? Is the internal story like, you know, clearly this is the right decision. Like we're 100% confident this is going to work. Or is it like, do you see what I'm saying? It, it, or is it like, oh God, we think there's like a 70% chance it's going to happen. You know, if we work really hard, we're going to go do it. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay. So your, your question was, what was the like uh, internal messaging? Or, or yeah, yeah. What was the internal feeling? Was it, was it like really abundantly clear if that makes sense? Or was it like, you know, we think um, we're pretty sure. It was definitely, I, it was definitely not clear to most people. I think gotcha. I would say I, I bet that Drew was extremely confident that it would work. Got I it. don't know if he was a hundred percent confident. Um, I, I think he was a hundred percent confident that it was the right decision. Um, I don't it. know how, like what his confidence was that it would actually work. Um, but, uh, I do think, he, um, he's often been much more confident than me that something would work and be right, been right. Um, gotcha. so I think, I, I, I think he had a very high confidence, I guess. I was, I, my guess is that he had a very high confidence that if we tried hard enough, it would eventually work. Got it. Um, and I don't, I don't know if he expected it to take longer or shorter than another like three years to reach product market fit. Um, <clears throat> or maybe it was even like four years or something. Um, but I, I think like his, his overall conviction that like it would work eventually is like, has been borne out. That's awesome. Um, so I've got, uh, one more question for you and it's a little bit of a pivot, but overrated or underrated? Bright lights in the home. Ah, incredibly underrated. Um, I think, um, so the backstory here is that um, a couple of winters ago, so in, in Boston, the sun in winter sets at around like 4, 4.30 PM. And I noticed um, that after the sunset, I it became much harder for me to focus. And I was like really resistant to just doing anything like productive. And I kind yeah. of just wanted to like curl up and like read a book or something. Yeah. Um, and so during one of my weekly reviews, um, I, I thought to myself, gosh, wouldn't it be great if I, I didn't have this problem and instead I could still focus in the afternoon cause then I could get more stuff done. And so I decided to try to simulate the effect of the sun, not setting at four, but instead, uh, setting later. And so I searched on Amazon for like the brightest light bulb that, that you can buy. Um, so, nice. and I, I, I bought one and it was like, it's like super bright. It's the equivalent of, I think around like 40 incandescent light bulbs or oh, something. Wow. And like, it's an led bulb, but like, despite being an led bulb and therefore pretty energy efficient, it still dissipates so much heat that like the bulb also has like an internal cooling fan <laughs> to like dissipate all of the heat that like the leds are generating. Yeah. And you can't really look at it directly because the LED, like the, it'll Go create blind. like after images. Yeah. Um, and so I like, I, I rigged up some terrible light fixture. Um, and there, there's, there's a blog post on my website with the instructions for how to do this, which if, if you ever have trouble focusing in, in the dark, I, I highly recommend trying it out. Um, but, uh, anyway, so, so I set this thing up and, and basically I, I turned it on and I was like, holy shit, I'm so energetic right now. Um, oh, and awesome. that was the point at which I knew that it was going to help solve my problem. And indeed, um, when I started using this light bulb, uh, in, in the evenings, 
I it became much much easier for me to stay focused on whatever like sort of high willpower or high attention task I was trying to do uh, for much later. In fact, I I realized that if I if I kept it on too late, it would become very hard for me to go to sleep. Oh, and wow. so I had to make sure that I turned it off at around like six thirty if I wanted to go to oh, sleep wow. at nine. Um, otherwise, I would be like I would have be like lying in bed thinking about all the stuff that I I like wanted to do, um, and. Yeah, so I would say during the winters, I regained around an hour a day of time during which I was able to do like high intensity focused thinking. That's awesome. And it was just a a huge benefit. Um, so uh, like I told a lot of people about this and they were like, huh, sounds cool. But I think they were still underrating it. So if yeah. you're listening to this podcast, even after my spiel, you're probably still underrating it. Uh, for example, I would like have friends over at my house and they yeah. would all say things like, Ben, it feels so cheerful and inviting in here. So. And I'd be like, have you looked at the small sun on my bookshelf? And they'd be like, oh, <laughs> that's why. It's Ben's son. Um, <laughs> or like, uh, I, I, I gave one to my mom for Christmas because she also has like the, uh, well, she, she actually has like, I think more serious like seasonal moods. Yeah. Um, and so I, I gave her one and she called me to thank me. And, and she, she said like, gosh, like I, I put this in a room in the house that like people didn't usually hang out in. And now like mysteriously, everyone is hanging out in this room all the time yeah. because it's like so much more cheerful. And so, um, yeah, I think that like the, these super bright lights, just um, getting getting enough light has a really, really big effect on mood and, and concentration. Um, and yeah, I keep, in fact, uh, I, I believe so strongly in this that I keep trying to convince people to start a company that builds these lights in like a, a better form factor because yeah. um, uh, the, like the one that I bought from Amazon is like, it's like really inconvenient. It's like super ugly. It's uh, the light is like concentrated into a very small area. So you kind yeah. of like, you can't really look at wherever the light is. Um, you yeah. have to sort of like, and then like, it has this fan that's kind of loud. So it's like, it's, it, it's not really like nice. Yeah. Um, and I, I really want somebody to start a company that makes the nice version of these bulbs where you can like put something on your ceiling and it gives like even really bright illumination like throughout yeah. the room. Um, if, if I weren't working on Wave, probably I would like try to start this company myself um, just because it's something that I like want to exist in the world. Uh, so yeah. maybe some listener to this podcast will like start start that company. Um, but Definitely. failing that, uh, everyone should try, should get on the uh, super bright light hype train. Absolutely. Have, have you read Inadequate Equilibria? By uh yes uh, i have okay um, this was i think I, I had seen several other people make references to like really bright light bulbs um like helping with with seasonal affective disorder yeah. i think the, th the thing that i realized or that this is this is definitely part of what like inspired me to do this i think yeah. the thing that i realized was like you don't have to be depressed in order for this to be useful to be, i didn't to have any mood symptoms i was still yeah. like perfectly cheerful in winter i just found it harder to focus in the evenings and it was still incredibly helpful to me so i guess I think about it as like there's sort of, and this is this is in in the blog post, but I think about it as sort of there's like a bell curve of like how much does light affect you, and if you're all the way off to like the like really affected by it end of the bell curve, then you like have seasonal affective disorder, yeah. and then your doctor will tell this like tell you like put this light bulb right next to your eyeball, but like the light bulb's really like dim, and so it still doesn't yeah, do anything. Still doesn't so, work. Um, but and, anyway, and so that's like if if you have seasonal affective disorder, then you should like definitely be doing this. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of people who like don't have full-blown sad but like still uh could benefit from a better illuminated space that's super i i love that i think it's really good advice and it's one of those things you know you might have mentioned this earlier but it, it's it's simple um and it 
and somewhat like retrospectively obvious that, yeah, like people like to be in the sun and, you know, and that's more pleasant, but you just don't think about it in your day-to-day life. Yeah. Or like the even more like retrospectively obvious case is like, you know, until humans became able to build these very large shelters, right? Yeah. Um, we were constantly in environments that even on a cloudy day were 10 or a hundred times as bright as most yeah. indoor environments are today, right? So like, why should we expect that reducing the brightness by a factor of a hundred would just be okay? Like, <laughs> that's kind of surprising. Absolutely. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I'm in, in rush. I'm very shocked that I like, didn't think about this earlier. Um, but there you go. That's cool. That's a great tip. Well, Ben, um, thank you so much for coming on. What's your uh, blog's address? We'll put it in the show notes and everything as well. Uh, my blog's address is bencoon.net. It's B-E-N-K-U-H-N as in November.net. Um, awesome. And you can go there. You can see some of the essays we've mentioned. Um, sign up for a mailing list um, where you get future essays. And uh, yeah, hopefully those will be useful to some people. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. Thank you. It was great to be on here. Um, really appreciated the great questions. And uh, yeah, thanks again for having me. Awesome. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.